A story is told of the 19th century pastor, Dr. Alexander White, a man that Warren Wiersbe called a giant of the faith and one of the 50 people that every Christian should know. Dr. White ministered in the Free Church of Scotland in Edinburgh. And while he was there, some traveling evangelists came to Edinburgh and began to criticize the ministers of the great city. A man who had witnessed this criticism came to visit Dr. White the next day. He told Dr. White that his good friend, Dr. James Hood Wilson of the Barclay Church, was included in the evangelist's criticism. I went to hear the evangelists last night, Dr. White, the man said, and do you know what they said? They said that Dr. Hood Wilson of the Barclay was not a converted man. According to the account, Dr. White leapt from his chair in anger. His serene face went dark with indignation. The rascals, he said. The rascals, Dr. Hood Wilson, not a converted man? The visitor seemed shocked to see a minister so angry. And he went on. That wasn't all they said, Dr. White. They said that you were not a converted man either. Dr. White stopped in his stride. All the fire went out of him. And sinking in his chair, he put his face in his hands. For a full long minute, he did not speak. Then looking up, he said to the visitor with awful earnestness, Leave me, friend, leave me, for I must examine my heart. This morning's sermon has been on my heart for a little over a year, and I asked Chad last year if, if I could preach it as my term as an elder comes to a close. We've been through a lot of change, a lot of growth over the last few years here at First Baptist. Some of it has been trying and tumultuous, but my time here has been some of the greatest joy serving God in this church that I've experienced in my life. And it will continue to be one of those greatest joys and I look forward to continued service here. The Lord has been faithful and has richly blessed this church. And I stand in awe of the great things that he has done here. Let me tell you, the words of my friend Shane Rosty came to me often as I prepared this sermon. And they come to me even now as I preach it. Shane is known to say to us all the time, actually... He reminds us to preach to ourselves, not listen to ourselves. And this message, I think, this morning is one that we all need to hear. And my prayer is that we would mind Paul's words to the church of Corinth. He said this to them in his second epistle to them. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. I hope that everyone here that claims to be a follower of Christ... We'll take time this Communion Sunday, like Dr. White, and examine your own hearts. I believe our text this morning to be the scariest words for the church in all of Scripture. 
Before we get into the passage, you see that it's from Matthew 7. You saw that at the beginning there. So you feel welcome to turn to that now, Matthew 7. But before we get into that, um, a few things in context. The passage this morning is from the Sermon on the Mount, which is one continuous sermon. It's Jesus' first sermon that he gives in his public ministry. It begins in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes, and it ends here in chapter 7. In it, Jesus reaffirmed the law, but he gave a radically different interpretation than those uh, that were present had practiced it. Unlike the Pharisees who set up a strict code of religion based on outward appearance, Jesus demonstrated that the law applied to the heart. And it began with the Beatitudes in chapter 5, verse 3. And a summary of the Beatitudes might read like this. And it's probably a little different than we often read it. But when you dig into it, this is what the summary might sound like. Blessed are those that recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy and mourn their utter sinfulness in contrast with God's perfect holiness. They will seek righteousness. They will be saved and their lives will demonstrate new life, which will soon lead to persecution. This would have stood out in stark contrast to the very public and proud lifestyle and legalistic religion of the Pharisees. And after that, Jesus then began to dismantle the core of the religion that his listeners probably followed. The law, Jesus said, didn't simply refer to actions, but attitudes. It required purity of heart. It was not enough to not murder. Anger in your heart violated the law. It was not enough to abstain from, from adultery. Lusting after a woman in your heart broke the law. Man could never fulfill the law to obtain salvation. And Jesus' goal was to make that abundantly clear. And he continues in Matthew 5, verse 20, to say this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then later in Matthew 5, 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but rather he came to fulfill it. He tells us that in chapter 5, verse 17. This is the gospel message. The purpose of the law was to reveal our sin to us so that we could recognize our need for a savior. Paul, in talking to the Romans, said that the law brings with it knowledge of sin. In Galatians, he called the law our guardian, our tutor, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to drive the listener to Jesus. Finally, it's important for us to recognize who the listeners are. These are probably people who are very religious. In fact, they are in essence the Old Testament church. And we know that there are people there who were saved through faith, like the Old Testament patriarchs. That should serve to caution us, I think, 
from viewing this passage this morning is being for somebody else. It is for those of us who claim to have faith in God's promises. Today, those of us who call ourselves Christians. And so we come to our passage this morning, and if you would please rise in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You may be seated. And so we have a problem here. The problem is that not all, all professing Christians will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let that sink in for a second. Not all people who profess to be Christians will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who are these people that Jesus is talking about? Well, they're not atheists. They're not pagans. They're not heretics. But they're also not followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I never knew you. They are false professors, people who believe they are saved, but are not. But who are they? First of all, they profess to be followers of Jesus. They recognize Jesus as Lord. The Greek word here is the word kyrios. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the word that is used every time Yahweh, some of you may know the translation Jehovah, every time the name of God is used, it is translated Lord, Kyrios, in the Greek Septuagint. It is used of Jesus in the New Testament about 700 times. So they know, they recognize Jesus as Lord. The continued use of the phrase that you see up there, in your name, demonstrates that they recognize Jesus as God and believe him to be the source of the power that they claim to have used. The language of these false confessors reveals their intellectual knowledge of Scripture. The double use of the phrase, Lord, Lord, by these false professors expresses a strong, emphatic, fervent zeal. Second, they claim to be workers for Jesus. They practice a ministry of prophecy, of exorcism, of working miracles. These are very public and obvious ministries. These false professors have claimed to do in the name of Jesus. Yet in the end, they are unsaved people. Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Intellectual orthodoxy, emotional zeal are not enough. A person might read the best books on theology. They may own commentary sets. They may follow the best pastors and listen to the greatest podcasts. They might emphatically sing, raise their hands in worship, or bow their head and close their eyes. They might even tear up 
But doctrinal purity and strong emotional responses do not equate to salvation. Doing work in the name of Jesus is not enough. They may, walk, they may work in the children's ministry. They may greet at the front door, pass the offering plate, serve on church boards, sing in the worship team, or preach from the pulpit. But the work you do in the name of Christ does not matter for your salvation. Having supernatural power is not enough. It is interesting to me that these works are very visible and public works. And it is interesting that Jesus does not deny their claim to have accomplished them. But the combination of these things was clearly not enough. These people do not, and in fact, never knew Jesus Christ. So consider what we have here. We have people who profess to be believers, who seem to be orthodox, who appear emotionally connected, and who do work for Christ. They are the type of people that we might look to as rocks in our churches. Yet they are not and never have been believers. There may be some of us here like this today. These are the scariest words on earth for those of us who claim Christ. Lord, look at what we did in your name. I never knew you. Depart from me. When you examine yourself, how do you know where you stand before God? If you're like me, these words can be chilling, but the text gives us some answers. The words of the false professors reveal their position before Jesus Christ. And we see it first in their response to Jesus. The false professors approach Christ with stiff-necked arrogance, detailing all the things that they had done. Yet when you look through scripture, this is not how people respond when they come into the presence of God. They respond with fear and worship. In Judges, Manoah says to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. Job said, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips. Ezekiel and Daniel both fell on their faces when they encountered God. As did, by the way, the disciples during the transfiguration. The text in Matthew 17 says they fell on their faces and were terrified. Saul, when he encountered Jesus on the road, fell on his face. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus appears to John to give him this book of prophecy... John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. And we see in Revelation 4 in the throne room around God that the elders fall on their face before him. And again in chapter 5 when the lamb takes the scroll. And again at the end of chapter 5 as, as, uh, they, as all of creation begins to worship Jesus, they fall down. I don't know exactly what it will be like when we come in the presence of the Savior, but you probably won't dance for Jesus as the popular song says. If we're saved, I can assure you 
that we will not boastfully and emphatically say, Lord, Lord, look at all that we did for you. Their response betrays their standing before God. But their claim also betrays their standing, their position before God. They say, look at what we've done. We've prophesied. We've cast out demons. We've worked all these miracles. But the Bible says that we are saved by grace, not as a result of works in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. In Galatians, Paul says that by works of the law, no one will be justified. And in Romans 4, verses 2 to 4, Paul says this, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. We might say his debt. Because the purpose of the law is to reveal sin in our hearts. We are saved by grace through faith, not works. Yet these false professors claim their works should credit unto them salvation. Finally, we see in our Lord's response to these false professors the real position of their hearts. Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This phrase, workers of lawlessness, the Greek tense of the phrase, implies constant action. These false professors were never saved and continuously practice lawlessness. In his discussion of false prophets a little earlier in Matthew 7, Jesus says a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. These false professors did things that would save them, that they thought would save them, but their lives were little more than a harvest of bad fruit, of sin. And so we see these false professors are unsaved because of their stiff-necked arrogance before God and their attempt to save themselves while, leaving, while living sinful, unrepentant lives. So where did they go wrong? Where do we go wrong. Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who is obedient. There's a lot to this question about what is God's will, and it's spoken of throughout Scripture, and we don't have time this morning. I mean, we could, but you probably want to get to lunch at some point. Um, to go through that in the amount of time we have left. But first and foremost, it is God's will that we be saved. John 6.40 says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Earlier in John chapter 1, John says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Ultimately, to do the will of God is to be obedient to him. And in fact, this is how Jesus ends this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. 
Immediately following this passage that we're studying this morning, Jesus ends the sermon with these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, hears and does, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. The person who hears the word of, words of Jesus and does them, who obeys, builds a house on the rock which the storm cannot tear down. Those who fail to hear, fail to do, build on the sand, and great was their fall. And we see a similar message in the parable of the sower that we find in Matthew 13 and Luke 8. To summarize that, the seed that falls on the rocky ground grows but quickly fails. Testing, tribulation, and persecution come in and cause it to wither and die. The seed that falls among the thorns, which represent the care of the world and deceitfulness of riches, are choked out and it also dies. But the seed sown on the good soil, Jesus says, falls on the hearts of those who hear, who understand, and who bear fruit. What is the constant message? Obey. Bear fruit. We struggle with salvation and obedience because it requires submission. And that is something we do not like to do. We want to be the boss. We want to be in charge. If you want to be sure if you're in the faith, ask yourself these questions. Do you believe? Are you being obedient? Are you submitting to Christ? After this, are you struggling with knowing if you're saved this morning? This passage tends to afflict the comfortable. But let us now comfort the afflicted. The book of 1 John was written to provide assurance of salvation. 1 John 5.13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. John says in 1 John 1, walk in the light. He sets these things up as a series of tests. And if you're doing these things, you can be assured that you're saved. He says, walk in the light. Obviously, that means there's progression, right? Walk in the light. Number two, confess sin. Obey God's commands, he says. Love other believers. Affirm sound doctrine. Pursue holiness and have the Holy Spirit. What does that phrase mean? 
Well, Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians, he calls them the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you're doing these things, you can be assured that you have the fruit of the Spirit and you have the Holy Spirit. And so are you struggling with your assurance this morning? Good. Good. That means we have work before the Lord to do. But know this, you're in good company. Paul in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15 says this. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. In his letter to the Romans in chapter 7, Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul, chief of sinners. The guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament. Spurgeon says this, If ever you or I are saved, if God shall give us very great mercy, we shall feel that we were the greatest of sinners. But you see, Christ came to save sinners, didn't he? John MacArthur says, When I find somebody struggling with the assurance of their salvation, it's inevitably a believer. Non-believers don't struggle with assurance. They may think that they're saved, but they don't struggle with assurance. Believers struggle with assurance because we understand that we are sinners before a holy God. It is good for us to examine our hearts to realign ourselves with God's will. You may remember Tom Hovestall, many of you do. Um, I remember sitting at Java Moon with Tom, and um, we were talking about this very issue, assurance of salvation. I was teaching 1 John in Sunday school at the time. And Tom said something that has stuck with me ever since. Tom said that as he gets older, he becomes more and more aware of his sinfulness. And he said, Kevin, those are only the sins I know. The Bible tells us we commit sin that we don't even know about. He said, I might have been supposed to speak to that lady over there about the gospel when I came in today, and I didn't do it. Tom said that what it did for him is he, as he viewed his sinfulness, that it made him rely every day on the grace of Jesus Christ. And that is our answer. Ephesians 2, 4 to 10 says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, we're not saved by works, but by grace. God has prepared these good works for us to walk in obediently. But let us remember Paul in his letter to the Romans when he said, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Peter, who walked on water, talked a big game, swore to never abandon Jesus. As soon as Jesus was arrested and he followed, denied Jesus Christ three consecutive times. Luke tells us, and I cannot imagine this, but Luke tells us that Jesus turned and looked at him after that third time. Can't imagine how brokenhearted Peter must have been. The text says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter was then absent during the crucifixion. He was slow to recognize the empty tomb. And after the resurrection, the disciples have been told, we read in John 21, to go to a mountain near Galilee. But Peter apparently got tired of waiting, and he went fishing. He may even have decided at that point to return to his old profession. He may have decided to give it up. Here was Peter, dejected and depressed. And then Jesus came to the disciples. And after breakfast, Jesus asked Peter three different times, Peter, do you love me? It's as though he was dealing directly with Peter's three denials. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Andreas Kostenberger has said, per perhaps at long last, Peter has learned that he cannot follow Jesus on his own strength. First Baptist, that's what our walk is about. We are powerless to save ourselves apart from the grace of God. Powerless to eliminate sin in our lives apart from the work of Christ on the cross and the Holy Spirit on our hearts but we have the Holy Spirit. My prayer for our church is that we would be a church committed to holiness, yet aware of our inability to achieve it on our own, and that we would fall upon the immeasurable riches of God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a tough passage. People who appear to think, feel, and do things that would seem to us to qualify them for salvation. And yet, Father, you've said, depart from me, I never knew you.
But Father, your grace overcomes all. Father, I pray that we would be a church that falls on the immeasurable riches of your grace. God, that we would then go out and obediently fulfill the works that you have laid out before us. God, I ask that we would use this time like your man that you had in Edinburgh, Dr. White, to examine our hearts. But Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us areas where we need to be more obedient to you. God, thank you for what you have done for us who do not deserve it. What a cheap gospel it would be, Father, if we could work our way to it. Thank you that you have loved us and shown us mercy through giving us your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church body to be honoring you, to be striving for holiness, and yet to recognize that we need to fall on your grace every day. Father, thank you for this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. You are dismissed.